Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, let's go right back to the phones and joining us. I think he's up in the wilderness in northern Canada on top of a glacier. Is that right, Mr. Uh, <laughs> Nate Zelinsky? I, I might not be uh, in the most remote of all areas, but uh, I tell you, I, I'm excited to uh, to be talking about hunting here in, uh, in Colorado. <laughs> well, one other thing, too. We do have to wish you you a happy anniversary. Your wife is a saint, though. I don't know how she does it, but. I think it's years. Years. I mean, it's hard to trick somebody that long, Terry. It really I, is. I, 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 how many years? Thirteen. Well, you know, the poor woman. Uh, of course, you were able to trick a lot of big games, so maybe your your <laughs> wiliness is still keeping her there. But we'll have to have a chat with her. But anyway, let's talk some hunting, my friend. I appreciate it. Don't talk any sense into her. I like where we're at right now. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we got a lot of stuff happening, Terry. And, you know, we, we obviously we got a lot of stuff fishing-wise. And I will say the fishing stuff is changing a little bit uh, as the mountains really approach their kind of fall startup. Uh, as those water temperatures are starting to drop just a hair. Obviously, the bait fish are, are plentiful in the front range. So those bites have changed. Uh, but with the big game season so readily approaching, we want to talk about at least a handful of things that I think people need to know and or be caught up on uh, on the hunting side. So first and foremost, uh, archery pronghorn opened up on the 15th of this month. So, you know, hunters have been out there for a handful of days uh, and we're getting a lot of results and or reports from that. So on regards to the, the pronghorn for um, archery season startup, we're seeing hunters on the waterhole not having quite the success they've had in past years. But we've been talking about that for three or four weeks. So it's not a surprise by any means, but the pronghorn number one are well hydrated, which, you know, they can sustain a a long use of water almost better than any animal. So uh, they're going into the hunting season well hydrated. And obviously we have water everywhere in abundance for the pronghorn. So the hunters that are sitting on the traditional water holes, I think the hunters that really scouted and found the premium water holes or the water holes that the pronghorn are comfortable drinking on um, have had some success. The hunters that didn't do as much scouting and just picked the random water holes that they've hunted for years and years are not quite having that success. So, again, uh, we've even seen a lot of times from my scouting situations of the pronghorn not even going to a dedicated hole. There's enough water in various locations and ditches and openings to where just on their daily feeding patterns, they're drinking to where a normal season they feed and they go to a designated water hole, drink, and then move on with their daily patterns. This year, I'm seeing them pick up water in enough areas to where it's just a part of their daily pattern. They're not necessarily seeking water. They're just drinking when they are around it in their daily feeding. Um, and, and it's changed things up. So, again, more so a report from the field. The, the hunters that really scouted out the right water are having success, but, but sitting on a water hole hoping for success, I would say, has not been as productive as it has in years in the past. Not to say it won't change. Um, if you sit on a water hole long enough, you will, you know, again, kind of increase that success. But uh, again, it, it might take a longer wait than you're used to uh, just because they're not seeking it out as often uh, or as regular as, as they normally would on a normal season. So keep that in mind. And with that, I do want to give a couple tips. Number one, if you're going to sit on a water hole, 
uh, we think about this as a, a long-term thing. So number one, getting your blind set up or however you're going to conceal yourself a long time ahead of time. If you throw up a, a blind or, you know, uh, some sort of wall or something to block you, um, they get pretty, you know, uh, cautious around that as they approach for the first time. So we set up our blind, you know, 10, 12 days ahead of time to where they get used to it. They want to approach it, see it there so they can get skittish for a couple of days, realize there's no harm, uh, and then start getting more regular with theirs. So number one, really, if you're planning on hunting, get your concealment set up now uh, to where you know that they get used to it so you have a plan in the future. Um, number two, sitting long days in a water hole. We talk about this all the time. Pronghorn are one of those things that even if you have them on a trail camera, even if you know they're drinking at 2 p.m., we get in our blind extremely early to where nothing sees us going in. So even though your particular pronghorn might not be coming in until 2 o'clock, maybe they're in the general area at noon or 10 a.m., and if they see you going in there, there is no chance they're going to come into that later. So even though I might not be anticipating the activity and movement of the animal until later, I always get into my blind extremely early. So when I sit on water, I sit on water from an hour before light to an hour after light, even though those are excruciating long days and high heat. Um, you know, I pack a ton of water, bring a book. I mean, half the time I watch movies on my phone, whatever you have to do, but those longer sets will increase your success. Just making sure nothing in that natural environment sees you approach that. So that's your number one. Number two, the guys that are spot and stalking those pronghorn have had drastically more success so far this season. I've seen a lot of hunters having the most success with decoys. So the most success has been decoy hunting, but with that, not how you would think it. Instead of having a doe pronghorn or a buck pronghorn decoy and hoping that a, a rut phase pronghorn is going to come in, they're more using cow decoys, donkey decoys, using horse decoys. They're using a decoy looking like livestock and then they are approaching the pronghorn with that. So the decoy isn't to draw. The decoy is to give you concealment or a, a hide as you approach the pronghorn. And that's been by far the, the biggest success this season that I've seen. So the last couple of days, the guys decoying with, uh, again, cattle decoys or horse decoys uh, have been extremely successful. So on the pronghorn hunt, uh, again, I, I don't want to have everybody change up their plans and abandon things, but think about those little tips. If you're on water, set longer. Don't let anybody or any of the livestock or wildlife, pronghorn, anything see you approach because it can always change up the patterns. Again, nobody thinks about the cows, but you scare the cows off and, you know, they go off running or leave and the pronghorn that two ridges over says, man, what scared those cows? They came from the water hole. That little type thing right there can throw your whole day off. So we approach in full stealth, long sits. That drastically helps. Concealing your blind for a longer amount of time to where they never uh, get cautious approaching it, it's a big deal. Uh, and then thinking about decoying with uh, an opposing or a different type animal uh, has been huge, and that's been the big success for pronghorns so far this season. All right. And we had actually some questions last week about how to approach pronghorn with a bow and how do you get cl- – one guy asked, how do you get closer than 200 yards? Uh, <laughs> And I I understand what he was saying, but I think everything you covered there really addressed what he needed to know. And we talked a little bit about it last week, but you just reinforced everything we said. So what about other big game? Are we, you know, we're getting close to some of this other stuff and dove hunting's right around the corner. 
Absolutely. So with all of those contests, we talked about Dove two, three weeks ago, but Dove opens on September 1st. Um, you know, again, same type thing. I don't scout Dove as hard as I do big game, but I definitely get out there. I see the flyways. I see the water holes. I see where they're roosting. If I need access to property, I try to approach a farmer or a rancher now instead of on opening day saying, hey, you know, I, I noticed there's some public land behind your place. I'd love access to it. Uh, you ask on an opening day wearing camo with gun in hand, the odds of you getting on are not as good. When you approach now saying, hey, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be opening Dove. I see you have a lot of access to some good property. Is there any way, you know, in a couple weeks that, you know, I could come in here, you tell me what time's good for you, and I can walk through your property or even hunt your property, um, and your odds go up. So we are spending some time prepping uh, for the opening Dove season. And, Terry, I've Dove hunted since I was, you know, as a little kid, um, you know, walking around carrying a BB gun up into where I had my first hunter safety. Uh, but I can tell you what right now, Terry, I am the most excited of any dove opener in history because uh, my kids, Lane and Lauren, uh, they have 20 gauges. They've been practicing and they are entering the field uh, as first time dove hunters with a, a license in hand. So I cannot wait. We are going to have an awesome opener dove. Uh, I can't wait to, to watch these kids uh, attempt to shoot a bird that tends to have that that force field around it to protect it. So I can't wait for that day. So we're excited about that, doing a lot of scouting for that. Yeah, and you know what? Doves are, and I kid a lot about doves and say it's a conspiracy by the ammunition manufacturers. <laughs> and, but, but doves are an incredible way to get youth into hunting. Um, because you don't necessarily have to do a lot of walking. You can use uh, lesser gauge shotguns very effectively, and and it just gets them interested and into the game. It's a tremendous starting hunt. I mean, that's it. You know, the things that we think about, you know, we can have great snacks. You have kids snacks make the day so you can sit around have snacks you can talk you're not whispering you know and if you miss one you know hopefully uh pretty quickly there there'll be another one and uh you know again not that we're trophy hunters but you know uh, a dove is a dove so it's pretty nice not to to miss the buck of a lifetime and have that kind of sorrow and regret with the dove you miss one you you know hold your head up and and look for the next one so excited about that and then the last two things we got to cover terry uh number one i want to talk about the elk uh, then I want to talk about some shooting real quick. So one with elk, uh, I would say that as of today, we are probably looking at 90% of mature branch antler bulls being hard horned. So in the last seven days, we watched almost all the bulls in Colorado lose their velvet. That's a great sign of that testosterone starting to flow. They are getting excited. They're getting ready for the breeding season. I am hearing more and more bugling. Uh, again, by no means would I would say that this is a, a start to the calling season, but we're starting to hear it. It's just all signs that everything is happening. So with that, when you're scouting, where these bulls are right now, you're starting to really learn a lot about the individual animals. When I'm out there scouting, now that they are hard horned, now that they're showing signs of, of again, uh, you know, the pre stages of getting ready for the rut, they're now really having their own characteristics, their own behavior. So right now, and then the next, you know, two weeks before that archery opens on September 2nd, and then, you know, a week or two following that muzzleloader, 
we're now learning their individual behavior. So you can see if a bull is more aggressive or less aggressive. So as they're hanging around each other, you're seeing those bigger bulls chasing off the little bulls. You see the bigger bulls, again, just showing signs of how they're going to act in the rut. Are they very docile? Are they more aggressive? Are they very nocturnal? Are they spending more time during the day? How often are they drinking? Now that the velvet's off, all those behavioral characteristics are coming to play. So we're out there literally as much as as possible, studying these bulls, watching these bulls, learning the little tidbits. So when we're hunting them in a couple weeks, we can make good decisions saying, hey, that bull always beds down. He's going to his bed now. Let's back off and hunt him tonight or hunt him the next day. Or, hey, I know that bull is very aggressive to everybody else. He's aggressive to these little bulls. He's bugling more. He looks like he's going to rut hard. We're going to wait into the first week of the season. We're going to approach that bull with a calling scenario uh, and so forth. So those are the concepts that I'm really watching now. I'm learning their behavior. And I talk to people all the time about calling, especially on public land, on over-the-counter style hunts where there's a ton of hunters, somewhat of a, a, you know, maybe a lesser rut because of the hunting pressure. And everybody asks, what's the, the best approach to have to success? My approach here, I watch the animals. If the animals are not ready to breed, if they're not calling yet, if the bulls are still together, your odds of calling in that bull, are you're, you're not going to have the chance. I don't want to say that they're obsolete, but if the bull is not into it, your odds of calling that bull in are, are very slim, and all you're doing is educating that bull on what's to come, and you're going to make them even quieter. What I personally do is I watch these bulls. I get out and scout. Even though I have bow in hand, even though I'm hunting, I treat it almost like a scouting session. I watch them from afar. I keep an eye on them. If I have an approach to sneak in and make a shot, I'll do so. But more than anything, I'm just watching them. I always call it the three-day window. You always have a three-day window when the bull first starts to show interest in cows. The bull's independent. He's alone. And it takes about three days for these bulls to go independent. To gathering a harem for the rut. That is when they're by far at their most vulnerable state. So when I'm pursuing any bull, especially a big trophy bull, I watch them and I watch those bulls and they're going to be independent. All of a sudden, you're going to start having them get closer to the cows. They're migrating towards the cows. They're starting to look at the cows. They're starting to smell the cows. They're smelling the cow, the ground where the cows were at. When you start seeing those first signs, it generally speaking is about three days and all of a sudden they're going to have that small harem. Once they're tight with that harem they don't want to leave that harem so if you can approach those bulls in that narrow window your odds of drawing that bull in and or cow calling and approaching that bull are extremely high so i take advantage of those windows on all the animals that i hunt so that's done through scouting so i i'm looking for my bull now and then once the season starts i'm really watching for those little signs to show interest in the cows and when those signs signs appear I move in, and that's going to be my greatest opportunity for that success of harvesting that bull here in Colorado. We need to move on. You said you had one more thing shooting. Let's make it quick because we're almost out of time. Absolutely. Right now, so I keep talking to hunters that have their rifle, have their optics, and they're walking through the, the retail stores looking for ammo. So, number one, I have a lot of people saying, hey, 
how do you make a decision on, on the ammunition? What type bullet? Everything has a, its own goal. Do you want a pass-through shot where you have a blood trail, you know, from both sides of the animal? Do you want a bullet that's going to be a softer tip that has a ton of expansion, probably not a pass-through, but extremely devastating uh, upon hit? All of these have things to, to come into play, and I look at whether my shot distance is anticipated to be close range, anticipated to be far range, uh, and so forth. But the biggest thing I want to talk about is consistency. So when hunters go out and they go to the range, I was at the range the other day and I watched this guy shooting and he was playing with two or three different sets of ammo and he was really trying to hit the bullseye every time. And he knew his scope was dialed in and he would shoot and he's like, oh, this one's off, this one's off. It's just like a bow. You want to shoot, you know, three to five rounds of the same bullet, same cartridge, same manufacturer, same die lot, and you want to shoot and just see where the group ends up. Don't worry if it's on the bullseye. Shoot, and I shoot three or four different brands of ammo, and if I can find the ammo that is shooting the most consistent, so my completed cartridge, when I hit, I have the tightest group of three to five shots. I then select that, move that over, and redial my gun to bullseye, and that's going to be the ammo that I want to shoot with. So even more so than the actual bullet itself, uh, I mean, I'm at the point where I have the perfect bullet and sitting in the perfect spot, but more than anything, I would rather have a consistent, Consistent flying bullet and not worry if it's a soft or a hard or, or what it may be. Consistency by far is our number one goal. And then we move into the, the actually, you know, what the bullet components are and what it's going to do upon strike. But number one, find a bullet that you can shoot consistent groups out, get that group in a bullseye. Uh, and that's the number one step. So get out there, test your gun, test some different rounds and find the bullet that is going to be the most accurate for you. Uh, and that's going to be the, the one that I want to start with this coming hunting season. We are out of time, my friend, but we will talk to you next week. Uh, you enjoy this weekend with your beautiful bride, and we'll talk to you next week. We'll talk to you soon, Terry. Thank you so much. All right, Nate Polinski. We'll take a quick time out, and we come back. Austin Parr is going to join us, and we're going to talk fishing on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. Let's go right to the phones and joining us is Austin Parr. Good morning, Austin. Good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We've got a lot to cover. We haven't talked to any conventional fishing here yet, and I know we'll throw in a little fly fishing. So in the beginning of the show today, I said even though the weather's hot, the the daylight hours are getting shorter, the nights are getting cooler. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of water temperature drops. We actually are seeing changes in the fish patterns, aren't we? Definitely, and especially with the bait fish that are out in these lakes right now, we are into now officially the late summer pattern where fish have largely peeled off of structure on our larger bodies of water and are really feeding aggressively and heavily on those shad. Why don't you take us through like Cherry Creek and Chatfield? Those are always lakes of interest. Yeah, so we'll start off at Chatfield, and, you know, one species that we don't talk about quite as much are the smallmouth bass. They have been quite productive lately, and especially with all the bait fish in the lake, the topwater action has been really worthwhile, and especially if you're a shore angler out there, you can take advantage of this in the early morning and late evening hours right along the rock faces. I like to use poppers, little rebel pop bars and a two and a half inch are one of my favorites, but also things like a whopper plopper or a spook all can be very effective. And those smallmouth really are, are very willing to eat those baits. The whole key with that, whether you're in a boat or on the shore, in my opinion, is to remain on the move, 
make a couple of casts, keep moving down the rocks. And as you work down those edges, those fish will really aggressively come up and eat those presentations. Uh, like I like to a lot of times start right early in the day. And then as the sun starts to crest and get onto the water, that bite largely will die off. So then I'll switch over to some more middle of the water column patterns. Uh, swim baits have been very worthwhile. A little three and a half to four inch Kitex style baits have been my favorite but also casting and reeling small lipless baits and even blade baits have been worthwhile as well and then with the walleyes they are also chasing the bait pretty heavily and they won't come up to the top water like the bass will but you can still catch some of those guys on the the casted and reeled presentations on the swims and the blades but i've been doing best on trolling presentations where they've been out off of the structure points they're not in the same place as they were a few weeks ago and they've been suspended eating that bait and i've been doing well with planer boards and salmo hornets have certainly been my best producer but also standard as well as shallow flicker shads have been productive um, and the same thing kind of goes for cherry creek the, the amount of bait at creek is much more significant even than chatfield and it creates a challenging environment to catch those fish so early in the morning they will be up a bit shallower feeding uh, on those shallower flats so the blades and the jigging rats can be effective for a few hours, but then that trolling bite really takes over as you get to the middle of the day and working over the main basin of the lake, trolling around until you can find a general area where there's more active fish feeding uh, will be your best bet. Keep it on the move somewhere in that range of 1.7 to 2.2 miles an hour. I've caught them all throughout that range for the last couple of weeks. I'll tell you a little thing I used to do at Cherry Creek. I, when I lived by the lake, I don't know if it's effective anymore, but we'd get to this time of the year, and the lake was just teeming with shad, and people would think the boats would scare them. I'd get right in the water, the water ski lanes or the jet ski lanes and go right behind those boats, and I'd troll uh, a small shad bait maybe 50 feet behind my boat, almost in the wash. And I wouldn't catch very many fish, but as those boats were hitting those schools of shad and stunning them, some of the biggest walleyes in the lake would come up, and I'd catch them right there. You had to have a lot of patience, but, boy, I produced some big fish doing that. Absolutely, and there have been some folks catching those big fish. And as you mentioned, up high in the water column really is what I like to do. You don't see them on the graph a whole lot, and whether it be in the prop wash behind the boat or behind a planer board, one of my best uh, links back behind a planer board has just been a Salmo Hornet at 20 feet behind that board. And that bait is only running just a few feet under the surface. And as you can have those shad start to be wounded, they really will eat that. But you, like you mentioned, the patience is key. You're not going to go out and catch a hundred fish like you were earlier in the year. If you get 20, you're doing pretty good, but the, the keeper ratio is very strong. We're well over 50% keepers right now. And, and uh, like you mentioned, the, the chance of a large fish is definitely there. What about some of the mountain lakes? What are you hearing? So it's a good time to head up there. As you're up in some of the high plains lakes, those may be a little bit slower for the next couple of weeks where we still have uh, some higher water temperatures, but look for places like Spinney and Antero and, and North Park to really be turning on as we start to get a little bit cooler nights. But in general, I've been hearing a little bit slower overall uh, 
uh, reports from those type of places. But the lake trout and some of the kokanee really have been going strong lately. Uh, as we get up to Green Mountain, Green Mountain Reservoir over the last several years has been quite poor. We've dealt with a lot of gill lice up there. But the biologists have been doing a really good job getting that back to a, a rebuilt stage. And some of those big cokes have been showing themselves. I think we'll have a nice run this year over the next couple of weeks. We're starting to see some of those kokanee chains getting a few hook jaws. Still a lot of silver fish, though, so definitely not quite into the full spawn yet. But you're likely to be able to find some bigger balls of kokanee, as well as working through a trolling pattern. And the advantage to that lake, too, is if for some reason you're unable to get those kokanee going, there are a lot of lake trout in there. And, and some of those smaller lake trout can make for some really nice table fare and Working through some downrigger presentations with needlefish as well as cowbell rigs have been worthwhile for both the kokanee and those lakers. But if you find those big schools of kokanee on your graph, dropping down jigging spoons, half to one ounce jigging spoons in bright colors and, and working aggressive presentations on a vertical basis are worthwhile options. And then also those lake trout will set up on the deep points. And the same type of vertical jigging presentations with spoons can be effective, but most times I'll adjust and, and fish my tube jigs tipped with sucker meat. So that's one to definitely keep an eye out on. And then shifting over to Green, or excuse me, a Williams Fork, uh, the kokanee are not very strong in there, but the lake trout really are. And you can get into a lot of those good eater-sized lake trout out there and have opportunities at your big catch and release fish as well. But the whole key if you're in the boat is working your sonars, get, keeping that down imaging on with the higher frequency so you can pick those fish up off the bottom, and then boat control to hold you in position so you can actively vertical jig. If you can get all of those pieces correct, you can be in for a pretty high numbers day. I want to, we're almost out of time. In fact, we should be, but I'm going to steal a minute here. We, you and I talked during the week. One of the things we talked about were beaver ponds. We're having a great year for hoppers, hopper dropper fishing. You know, if, uh, whether you're conventional with a fly in the bubble, but especially if you're a newer fly angler trying to get used to catching fish on a fly rod, if you can find some unmolested beaver ponds that are full of brook trout and throw a hopper dropper out there, it can be a great place to learn, and the action can be just phenomenal. Absolutely. And then what I tell people fishing those beaver ponds is fish the moving water on the front and the back side of the ponds. The fish are extremely active and willing to eat those small hoppers. But put something like a little size 14 Stal Cups hopper or a classic Moorish hopper on top and then drop a Copper John or split case PMD down below, and you can be in for a 100 fish day real quick. Uh, they're just great. You know, and there's lots of them that you'll be the only one fishing at the, the 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 streams going in and out of Sylvan Lake and up in the Rocky Mountain National Park and up on the flat tops. There's just little places everywhere. We're out of time, Austin. If people want more information, how do they find you? I'm a discount fishing tackle. We're six blocks south of Evans on the west side of Santa Fe. All right, my friend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Terry. You bet. Austin Parr, always a great resource. We're going to take a time out and we come back. We're going to change things up as uh, JR from Colorado Clays will join us and we're going to talk some shooting on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. Let's go to the phones, and joining us from Colorado Clays is J.R. Pierce. Good morning, J.R. And good morning, Terry. You know, you and I have talked a lot, and we talk a lot of the topics we cover as far as types of sight-ins, patterning, 
working on different shots. We aim at maybe the at least the average or avid shooter, somebody who's probably into the shooting sports or hunting a lot. What about the friends and family of these people that maybe are new shooters they want to introduce or maybe they're non-shooters? How do we address those people? Well, Terry, you know, and we did, we had this conversation. It really got me thinking, Terry, when, you know, folks think about the new shooter, everybody envisions that young kid, um, you know, getting his first gun, trying it out for the first time. But there is so much more than just that group. Uh, like you say, most people have a friend or a family member, could be of any age or background, that is wanting or possibly wanting to try some version of shooting. We also have, you know, people that are new to a shooting range, maybe have been shooting, come out and see all the different ranges, courses, and fields available. Uh, lots of new people to a particular type of firearm or shooting. Uh, you know, they may shot shotguns and then finally get a rifle or pistol, so kind of puts them in a new category. Uh, lots of folks new to hunting uh, and need to prep for that. So, um, you know, new things uh, available here at Colorado Clays for them. Many people, Terry, are new to the competition or competitive aspect. Um, lots of them are getting into personal and home defense, get the new gun, maybe want concealed carry. Um, new to personal instruction or classes or clinics. Uh, lots of people new to that format and what it can do for them. And then, you know, as we've said many times, Terry, uh, people new to firearms, period, that maybe don't even want to shoot or have one, just want education on that. And what, what's great is that if you fall into any of those categories, uh, Colorado Clay has everything you need to move forward and really experience all of the great opportunities recreational firearms activities have to offer and be in Colorado's premier public access shooting facility. Anyone can do it year-round uh, on a walk-in basis and with no membership fees required. So to that note, Terry, all these folks that are new, um, everything they need, which is generally going to be starting with uh, a proper gun fit, um, a training area, perhaps some instruction, and that's what we usually try to focus on with those new people. Yeah, and do you recommend, I mean, well, I'll tell you, as having a spouse that shoots, um, we both have taken brush-up classes at times where we had a, 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 a professional watch us shoot and, and pick up little bad habits we picked up. Well, doing that with each other, although we do help each other, it can be difficult sometimes with your spouse or, or a new shooter because you just, you're too in, emotionally involved. I think getting help, a little bit of instruction up front can really make a difference. Yeah, Terry, totally agree with that. And, you know, we have a lot of folks come in that, uh, whether it's a husband and a wife or a kid, and it's like, they're not going to listen to me. And that's a very broken record, Terry. But it is really good to get a professional's opinion um, so that we start out properly. Um, you can see things as an instructor uh, happening and correct things so much easier than having people try and learn it the hard way or develop bad habits out of the box. So, yeah, definitely worth the time, worth a couple dollars to get somebody to get you into the uh, sport right, be able to do it safely, and come out confident that you can move on at your own pace. Well, it's hard for me to give good instruction to Karen, she doesn't want to listen to me because she outshoots me. So 
Shoot, no. <laughs> <laughs> right, right? Yeah, you know. So. Well, it's like you giving me fishing lessons, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I want to talk a little more about non-shooters. Now, you get a lot of people have a, a friend, a family member, that, and you mentioned maybe they don't even want to become a shooter, but if you have somebody who's into firearms in the family, you know, bringing them out to the range, showing them the safety aspects of organized shooting, let them understand. A lot of times it's a fear of a gun is this thing that's, you know, they've been conditioned by society that that's a bad thing, that gun, and they don't even want to touch it. But when they understand the workings and they, even if they fire a few shots downrange, just, you know, with a twenty two, just become a little familiar it can it can do a couple of things. It can change their attitude. They might become shooters, but at the very least, it may can make them be comfortable with having firearms, you know, properly stored in their home and things like that. I totally agree, Terry. And over the years, that's probably been one of my favorite parts of this job is introducing folks that either have had that fear of it and let them know that when handled properly um, or improperly, it could be a firearm, an automobile, you can go down the list. Uh, It's all about safe and proper handling. Um, The basics of a firearm are pretty straightforward, Terry, and I love it when people come out, many of them very shy about it, but come out and actually educate themselves and learn about firearms. And oftentimes, uh, when it's all said and done, they got to try it. And we've just had so many that are still coming back year after year that would have sworn they would never do it prior. So that is a really, that's a group of people that I love helping. And uh, we really take pride in um, working with them here at Colorado Clays. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that there's this, stigma about firearms a lot of people they just have this feeling about them and once they understand them and handle them and even shoot them a little bit or once they go through gun safety and they understand you know that you know if you handle a firearm properly and with respect it 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 can be an, an enjoyable sport whether you're target shooting hunting competitively shooting or we have one of my favorite seasons coming up and that's doves what a great way to get kids started in learning that they can't hit anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> With Uncle Terry, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and that's right, though, Terry, and that, that's another thing that is so nice is uh, the broad spectrum of outdoor activities and truly enjoyable social and family activities um, that are available with the shooting sports. And oftentimes, you start out with the, that 410 or that 20 gauge, the first time out hunting, whether you get anything or not, it's an absolute, totally different experience than playing video games or any of this other stuff. Um, I just, it is such a pleasure to, to see, and particularly families, Terry, our, uh, our business is based huge on family outings and, uh, you know, big events for causes, and it's so fun, and just uh, people enjoy it so much. I wish everybody would come out and see what it's really about before they make a judgment. You know, um, Nate was talking. This will be the first year his twins are entering the field during gov season as hunters. They have 20 gauges. They have their license. They've accompanied him on dove hunts for years, and seriously, I mean, I kid about doves all the time. Doves are probably one of the best 
hunting experiences you could start with for kids. You don't have to do a lot of walking. It doesn't require the same stealth. And if they miss one, there's probably going to be another one along in just a little bit. But even dove hunting, if you're going to go the first time, I would bring them to Colorado Clays and have them shoot their shotgun. Uh, whether they're able to make a shot or not, at least get used to, maybe just shoot it at the patterning board. But get used to, you know, a little bit of the recoil, get used to the noise, and understand so when they're in the field, they're ready to go. Yeah, so important, Terry. And so many folks that have been hunting their whole life that have never patterned a gun have no idea how big the pattern is, how many pellets are in the pattern, et cetera, et cetera, how important or different uh, where your gun hits is based on your form. And definitely those kids really pick that stuff up quick, and uh, I would absolutely recommend it. And even for Nate, get out here, let them kids pattern that gun, get on our straightaway trap, break some targets, get them some confidence, and uh, just move them along at a pace. It'll certainly play huge dividends on opening day. Real quick, I want to change and talk one thing. Nate and I also talked about, we see guys at the range that have five or six bullets that they're trying out before they're going hunting. And they have their scope, they consider their scope zeroed in, but then, oh, I don't like this one, it shoots to the left. I don't like that one, it shoots a little high. Instead of trying to find a bullet that you that will hit where you think your scope is zeroed in, find a bullet that gives you a very consistent pattern with f- over four or five shots and zero your scope and then hunt with that ammunition, right? So important, Terry. Yeah, bouncing around, uh, not the way to go. And uh, so much of how and where a gun hits is based on the person in control of the firearm. So I always recommend, and I myself, when I'm trying out loads, I will get in that lead sled, uh, which we offer here at Colorado Clays that locks your gun down tight. And you can actually get a grouping based on the gun or based on your personal um, you know, form not being the issue. Once you've found the load, it's like, okay, this one is a tight pattern or tight group. Then you can move left, right, up, or down to put it there and then add yourself into the mix if there's any changes there, uh, correct for that. But, yeah, the gun's got to like the load, um, and then you've got to decide how much of it's the gun and how much of it is you so you can come to the best combination uh, to get out in the field. We are out of time, my friend. If people want more information, how do they find you? Uh, give us a call, 303-659-7117, or go to coloradoclays.com, check us out, take the virtual tour, but definitely get out here, Terry. Season's coming fast. All right, my friend. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Terry. That's JR from Colorado Clays. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll wrap up this week's edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. We are wrapping up this week's edition. A couple things I want to recap hunting and fishing wise. I know it's going to be really warm out for a few days, but the daylight hours are getting shorter and the nighttime temperatures are falling. And especially in the high country, we're starting to see hints of fall. 
and we're starting to see water temperatures drop just a couple degrees and things are changing. Now it's going to be subtle for a while, but we're going to, uh, we're, we're, you need to be aware of those changes. If you're getting ready for hunting, you need to get ready now. Cause it, I mean, pronghorn archery has started already. Archery elk and muzzleloader right around the corner. Dove season's just a little ways away. And those things are going to change quickly, but I think they're going to be good starts. But pay attention. Don't be caught off guard thinking it's still middle of summer. Things are going to change as far as the activity of the animals and the fish. So keep that in mind. Hey, is Dan Jacobs in the studio? I am here, sir. Well, I want to I want to ask you a question. And if you were going to look for one thing tonight in the Broncos game, I'm not going to say that will give you confidence because I know there's a lot of skepticism out there yet that the Broncos are going to have a great year, but something that would give you hope that they're on the right track. What would that one key out of this game be? Offensive line play. It's got to hold up. Now, do you think we're going to see changes in that offensive line before, before the season starts? No, I think they're rolling with what they got. Uh, well, the only change is that Mike McGlinchey hopefully will be back in time for the regular season. But, um, no, I think they're rolling with what they got. Now, the, a good change would be they start playing better. What about um, our left tackle situation? Is he reverting back to where he was before his contract year? I, unfortunately, that's I believe that's the way it's been trending. Now... We hope, Terry, you and I were, were beacons of hope and light in the universe. So we hope that, you know, training camp, they're just kind of getting ramped up. And then when the regular season rolls around, they're, they're going to turn it on, right? You know what it's like? You know what it's like, Coach? When we went, you and I, many, many moons ago, you were coaching me up, and I wasn't playing that well. And then we went, we went to Horse Tooth Lanes uh, for the state championship, and I just flipped that switch, and I blew the competition away, and I won the state title. Maybe they're doing I would that. Think, I thought nobody else showed up. But I, I, <laughs> however you remember it is yes, fine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, but, you know, seriously, um, they aren't game planning either. And, it, and it, people don't realize that the game planning isn't just putting in ride receiver routes game, and, and your defense who's going to cover who. Game planning is your blocking schemes also. It is, but... Um, I wouldn't give, like, for example, Garrett Bowles a pass when, you know, some guy just blows right by him in a preseason game. Like, you don't need game planning to, you know, not get, you know, jailbreaked, you know, guy right by you. That That's still concerning to me. Yeah, I don't want to come out of this game saying, boy, Russell Wilson can really move. Right. Because that meant that the offensive line didn't play well. Yes. So I think we're on the same page there. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to wrap this thing up and we'll let you have plenty of time to tell people what's going to happen tonight. All right. Thanks, Coach. All right. We're wrapping up this week's edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. We want to thank Dante back in the studio for keeping us on the air and running it from there, keeping things going. Thank Karen for setting up the whole deal and keeping me online and Thanks to you folks for listening. Uh, If you enjoy what we do, join us every Saturday on the fan from 9 to 11. Occasionally we get bumped around a little bit. If that's the case, 
Follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, and we'll let you know if there's any schedule changes for that weekend. And follow our music at Wickstrom and Dobers on all the social media and streaming sites. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour in sports with Dan Jacobs. There she stood in the doorway with a mission back.